one of our patients described it like being upgraded to business class. Um, a lot of times patients haven't seen something like this before. And so when they first come here, they're sometimes a little skeptical and confused at what, what this clinic is. And then, but really quickly, they fall in love with the model. And oftentimes we hear is, why, why aren't other clinics doing this? People should know about this so that this can be done more. That's Dr. Matthew Phillip talking about his medical group's proven approach for keeping seniors out of the ER. We'll hear more from Matt later in the show. We'll also talk to David Enns about technology's role in alleviating social isolation and loneliness in the senior population. That's all coming up on this episode of Insights, but first, a word from our sponsor. Can't make it to New Orleans? Let us simplify the annual conference experience by delivering premier content to your home or office with MGMA 19 Live. This online event includes 12 of our top sessions, as well as three exclusive sessions, all streamed live. Join us for content that can start improving your team's performance right now. For more information, visit mgma.com slash online. Today's senior population continues to grow at an astronomical rate, with studies showing that 10,000 baby boomers are on course to reach the age of 65 every day for the next 10 years. Many of these seniors tend to be our country's most vulnerable patients. The emergency room has become their primary method for accessing health care, resulting in increasing hospital admissions, readmissions, and skyrocketing hospital bills. One potential way to combat this problem is through an integrated care approach, a model our first guest, Dr. Matthew Phillip, has come to embrace. Matt is the Medical Director of Clinical Innovation for Illinois' DuPage Medical Group. Matt, thanks so much for joining the podcast today. Now, tell us a little bit about your background in healthcare and where your focus is today. Well, I've been in healthcare for over 10 years, uh, joined DuPage Medical Group, and um, initially started with our inpatient hospital service. So I was focused on decreasing costs and on and improving quality for our patients that were hospitalized to our neighboring hospitals, about four hospitals. And we were able to decrease some of the costs in the hospital side, but we took a step back and we said, well, we're kind of reacting here because the patients have already been hospitalized. What if we moved a little bit sooner into the outpatient area to prevent those hospitalizations from even happening? And so then about six years ago, we started our clinics called the Breakthrough Care Centers, which are uh, high-risk clinics with more resources for at-risk seniors to try to prevent hospitalizations and emergency room visits. Um, Part of the reason why we did this is we noticed that 20% 20% of patients account for 80% of all of healthcare costs. And so we figured we should probably give them more help and services to try to help prevent some of those bad outcomes from happening. You have a presentation coming up at MGMA's annual conference. It's, it's looking at a, a really interesting topic um, about how to keep seniors out of the ER. And we were doing some research here, and our stats showed that the senior popula- population accounts for more than 20 million ER visits a year. So there's a real reason um, and a purpose to have a session like yours. So talk to us about that. Just how prevalent of a problem is the elderly's frequent use of the ER and has that trended up? Yes, it actually has been. And there are several reasons for this. One is demographics. There there are more and more seniors happening and Uh, that's 
that's only going to increase over the coming years. Um, but what we find is, is that healthcare in our country tends to be very reactive. We kind of wait for bad things to happen and then we do, do a lot of things. And patients are oftentimes sent to the ER because um, that's the easiest thing for when someone calls in to send them to the ER. And then they, as they get funneled into the emergency room, so we realize that about 33 to 40% of those patients are then admitted, even if they're admitted overnight just to, you know, to, to kind of watch the patients because now you're dealing with a physician who doesn't know you, there's no relationship there and everyone can take a more conservative, cautious approach. But errors can often happen in hospitals, in emergency room um, when, when there isn't uh, a good line of communication and a kind of relationship there. And so we really try to focus on how can we prevent those things from happening? How can we help people to be healthier, safer, and have better outcomes overall while decreasing the overall cost in healthcare? Mm-hmm. Is, is it really the the system right now? You were saying that's at times that's just the easiest thing to do, but at the same time we, you know, we we have the results. We know that how uh, expensive it is, how costly it is to the system to send people to the ER. So how did we get here? How did we get to the point where we just kind of went, well, there's something going on. Let's get you to the ER as opposed to getting you to your, uh, you know, primary physician. Yeah, it's a great question. Our system has been really misaligned for a while. Um, we had the majority of our, um, our model right now and historically has been a kind of a fee-for-service model where the more things you do the more you get compensated for that and so there hasn't been a really proactive thoughtful approach on how do we help people to be healthy how do we prevent bad things from happening it's been this reactive okay things have happened now let's you know charge different services for different procedures and things of that nature and so it's been it's created this kind of culture of just being a little bit backfooted um, in terms of our, our care for for patients in general, and we're really trying to take a more proactive, front-footed approach to say, okay, if 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 these seniors were our family members, how do we take care of them? How can we you know, prevent bad things from happening? How can we help them to be independent, healthy? And what we've seen is a huge reduction in costs and a, and a significant increase in their uh, quality of life and their patient satisfaction. Mm-hmm. What can be done then? I mean, is there education involved? Is a is it a ch- fundamental change in the in the system in the process? What can we do to kind of keep those seniors out of the ER as you talk about in your presentation? Yeah, you know, it takes a lot of different things. I think what we've struggled with in healthcare is we have all these algorithms. We try to fit people in boxes where we say, okay, you know, for congestive heart failure, we're going to do this. For um, breathing problems, we're going to do this. And we try to fit people in boxes. But what we see is, is that not everyone gets can fit in boxes. And um, and that's why 5% of patients account for 50% of healthcare costs, and 20% of patients account for 80% of healthcare costs. And so we cr- sought to create these clinics with a variety of different resources in the clinics to try to treat the root cause of what was going on. And as we as we did that, we found that it was different for everyone. And instead of trying to fit people into boxes, we tried to tailor our approach to the individual, whether it be home care services, counseling, is it depression a cause? Are they isolated? Or do they not have the teaching or education needed to try to prevent 
those things from happening. They, they didn't, uh, didn't understand really what the root cause was of their medical conditions. And as we started to partner with patients, their healthcare started turning around and we saw an over 50% decrease in emergency room visits, hospitalizations, and hospital readmission rates. You mentioned the term isolation, and that is a, a problem for many seniors. Uh, many of them are uh, living alone. And what can be done about that? I mean, I, I understand if, if that's the uh, their living arrangement at the time, um, but how do you get them a support system, so to speak, so their first inclination isn't to, say, call 911 or to head into the ER? You know, I think it all comes down to a relationship and developing that relationship um, with um, the individual as well as our staff is our, you know, a, a couple of our patients described our clinic sort of like uh, that old show Cheers, where people would come in and they would they would know you by your first name and there was that kind of family feel. They, we have patients just walk in and say, hey, I need to be seen or this is going on or they'll tell us what's going on in their family lives and their social situations. And as we hear that background, we start realizing that maybe this patient needs help with their medicines. Maybe this patient needs a little bit more frequent visits to help them um, maintain the momentum that they've seen so they keep making progress. And it's really different for every person. But then the other thing we try to do is we try to connect them with um, resources in their community that we're aware of that they may not be aware of so they can get, be more engaged in, in, this, in the communities and have a more um, uh, interactive kind of social uh, situation that, that overall promotes health and wellness. Is there a guideline or any sort of a process that you recommend other providers take? Is there, for instance, a checklist or something that uh, the seniors can fill out, a, a form of some type, so then you have a ready-made you know, list of list of answers for this particular patient? We do have some of those. We do a kind of health risk assessment based on their medical conditions of seeing where their at-risk problems would have. Things such as, um, have they had falls? Are they, do they have family close by? What, what are their, what is their interaction with the society around them? How many times do they leave their apartment? Things of that nature. And those can be clues as to where they're coming from. You know, is depression an underlying issue? Um, we ask them how many medical conditions they have now. We, we may know how many medical conditions, but there's so many times where people have 10 medical conditions and they think they only have two or three. And I, I think a lot of this is health literacy and helping them understand what's actually going on with their bodies too. So th there are a variety of different causes. Yeah, communication does seem key. I've, I've had some elderly family members, and there's just been some situations where uh, the family members, we can see things changing for that loved one, but there, there can be a resistance. There can be sometimes a, an embarrassment to admit, hey, I'm, I maybe can't do some of the things I, I used to be able to do. So how, how do you have those conversations where you can get them on board educate them and, you know, maybe get them to see some of the things they can do and then some of the things that they can't. You know, I, I think it really comes down to that one-on-one -on -one relationship that we've, that we develop with, with our patients, because we have to have a lot of difficult conversations. We talk about end of life planning and what their goals of care are. 
we have to talk to them about using canes or walkers when they, they've had 80 years of not using those things. Talk about uh, you know, not driving anymore or restricting some of their, their um, the things that they used to do or felt very comfortable with. And it, it can seem like a decrease of independence, but when we phrase things in that, it's actually meant to prolong their independence for a longer period of time and promote their safety as well as the safety of other people. When people people are smart and they can they can tell if you really care about them or not. And as we have that foundation of a really caring, thoughtful relationship, we can we can really move the needle on a lot of these things and um, decrease a lot of the bad things that happen to people. And, and we've been able to maintain top one percent of patient satisfaction both nationally and regionally as we're having these difficult conversations. And so that speaks a lot to the relationship that we've developed. Are there, how are you tracking that? Are there some data points that you've been able to accumulate so you can you can show the benefits of these programs you've put together? Absolutely. So we form partnerships uh, with different payers in our area. Um, we focus primarily on Medicare Advantage plans. And the reason why we do that is we do get data back to say how we're broadly doing for our patients in terms of their emergency room rates, their hospital readmission rates, their hospitalizations, their um, their patient satisfaction and things of that nature. There's also survey data with Prescani um, that we get back from our patients. So we see that our patients have um, more, less than 50% emergency room visits, um, hospital readmission rates, both regionally and nationally, while having top 1% patient satisfaction. And so if you can have patients that are happier, healthier, and dramatically decreasing costs, I mean, it seems like a, a win-win situation for both the patients and our healthcare system. Right. Have, have you had any uh, communication with any of these patients, like getting their feedback, some anecdotal info to help you understand what's working, what's not, and, and made adjustments from there? Absolutely. Yeah, we've 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 tailored some of the resources that we have in terms of social working and pharmacy help and um, different resources that we have based on what our patients have requested and asked for. Um, one of our patients described it like um, being upgraded to business class uh, at the airport, and um, and just seeing kind of these additional resources and 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 really appreciating being here. Uh, a lot of times, patients haven't seen something like this before. And so when when they first come here, they're they're sometimes a little skeptical and confused at what what this clinic is. And then, but really quickly, they fall in love with the model. And oftentimes, we hear is why why aren't other clinics doing this? People should know about this so that this can be done more. Right now, for your uh, presentation at annual conference, you you write about an integrated care approach. If you could define what you mean by that, what is what constitutes the integrated care approach and who all is involved? So we have a physician, uh, we have a nurse practitioner that helps with our access. We have a pharmacist to review medicines and uh, decrease medicines whenever possible and educate on, on those medicines. We have a social worker that can provide counseling as well as home resources. We have uh, nurses who are health coaches that provide additional education and teaching and also can provide some some additional resources in our clinic, um, and um, and and that's the team we have. We also partner with our physical therapists um, so that our patients have access to some um, uh, of their the uh, rehab equipment, so they can maintain their physical strength and and keep active and fit. Um, and so th that's the team that we have 
focus together. Now that team is deployed differently for different patients depending on what they need. So not every patient sees all of our team members, but we create a tailored plan for the individual. And so, and then we'll kind of help them be introduced to our team and, and uh, create a plan that's, that's made just for them. Mm-hmm. What happens when your team has, has done some tests with the patient, you have uh, perhaps deemed that they may not be uh, mentally all there, or there may be other uh, circumstances where they, their decision-making may be impaired. What do you do at that point? Well, that's a great question. It's, it's difficult. Um, we, we, again, leverage the relationship we have with the patient as well as their spouse and family members. And we, we really try to make decisions with as many decision makers um, as possible. So uh, we, we try to build a consensus with the patient and family members. And, and a lot of times patients have had a sneaking suspicion that things are, have been heading in the wrong direction. Uh, or family members have definitely noticed it and they said, hey, we've been noticing this for six months. I'm so glad you guys picked up on that. And so there's there's a lot of support that we have. And and as we try to make decisions together, I think family members and patients can really see, hey, you're saying this because you care about me and you really want what's best for me. And yeah, of course, I want to maintain my independence as much as possible. So I don't want to, I want to lean on your experience here and say, well, instead of stepping on these landmines, how do we go around them? So that we can prevent a bad outcome, and 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 patients seem to understand that. Mm-hmm. If you don't mind, I mean, I'd love to hear maybe a particular case, uh, an example of of a patient that you guys worked with who maybe was a, a repeat visitor to ERs, where you helped communicate to them, helped communicate to their loved ones, and and got them into your program uh, where they got the care that they needed. You know, actually, there there are actually so many examples that I could share with you. Uh, one that just uh, comes to mind is um, uh, this gentleman who was in the emergency room literally every one to two weeks and was hospitalized every month. And he was heading towards dialysis. Um, his kidneys were steadily getting worse. Uh, he was just having a hard time managing things. He was either going to end up in a nursing home um, or or on dialysis or both. And um, he was just having a very hard time. He said that he was, saw about 10 different doctors on, on average. And, and this is something we commonly see is, is that our patients typically see 10 different physicians. And he said something that was typical of a lot of our patients that, you know, the physicians all seemed to be saying different things and they were contradicting each other. And he got so frustrated. He said, you know, I'm just going to kind of do my own thing. And we got him in and we said, okay, let's, let's come up with a plan together. And we, we helped figure out what was important to him. We created a plan. We shared what we thought was important. We looked at his records from his old old providers and um, hospital system. And we looked at it and we charted a course together and then we kept adjusting that plan over time. And then for a period of six months, he only had one emergency room visit and one hospitalization, actually two emergency room visits and one hospitalization in a six month period of time. And that continued for the first year and he saw a lot of progress. He was able to stay in his own home. And his kidney function stayed rock steady over that period of time. That's just one example. Um, there's another lady who is 85 years old who was on 30 different medicines. And she just seemed to go to different specialists and collect another pill. It seemed like the easiest thing to do was to give, give her another pill, another pill, another pill. 
we started systematically decreasing that from 30 different medicines to six over time. Um, we um, kind of changed our overall plan of care. And then we were much more selective with which specialists we sent her to and we communicated directly with those specialists. So there was an open line of communication. She, she, she herself said that she was thinking of putting herself in an assisted living or a nursing home situation because she just didn't see how she could function. She has been living independently, um, said she feels great. She was hospitalized every month and now hasn't been hospitalized in over a year. And she says that she hasn't felt this good in several years. And we see that in a lot of our patients is that taking that extra time to really dig down and find out the root cause of what's going on, it pays huge dividends in terms of um, preventing bad outcomes and decreasing a lot of the, the pills that people are on. Mm -hmm. um so you've made this successful transition to this integrated care approach where you're working with elderly patients. What are the steps you would take uh, or tell our listeners to help them sort of make this move? They're, we've got quite a bit of uh, medical practice uh, administrators and professionals listening to the, our podcast, and I'm sure they're curious and interested in what they can do next. Yeah, I think the the first and biggest thing is, and part of the reason why um, I'm so thankful to be on the podcast and as well as share at the MGMA conference this year, is just to show people that A, it's possible, that we've been doing this for six years and our results have actually been getting better and better over those six years. And so um, I think one of the things that initially um, was was a barrier that we had to get over is we just needed to know that it was possible and that it was doable. And once we took that step of faith to say, we're going to commit to this because we, we, we need to see something better than what we were currently seeing, um, we were able to continually improve on our concept over those years. And that it doesn't have to be perfect right, right off the bat, that with plans such as Medicare Advantage plans where the incentives can be aligned, what we're seeing is, is that our clinic is profitable. It's, uh, it's also... Um, has significantly better outcomes for our patients and our patients are much happier. And that helps our reputation. That also helps us to create innovative ideas that help our other clinics, our non-breakthrough care center clinics, things that we've learned here, almost like a kind of in, the, in, a, in a pilot sense, the things that work, we expand to our other clinics. And so there's really downstream effects throughout our whole health system. And that's helped DuPage Medical Group be in the top quality of in Illinois with one of the lowest cost uh, basis in Illinois. And so if you can provide high quality care at low cost, I mean, there is going to be a market for, for that um, in any region. You mentioned that you put this together six years ago. What was the model you used? Was there an existing practice who was working with the elderly already? Or did you and your team just get together and develop a strategic plan? What, what was the process there? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, we were, we were hoping that we just had a a plan out there that we could just take out of the box and just, you know, just do. We, we had no desire to reinvent the wheel. But what we did is when we looked around at different health systems all across the country, we just didn't see a model that really addressed this need that, you know, we 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 just didn't see it. And um, I, I, there may be a lot of reasons for that. And I can't speculate on those reasons. But we what we decided is we're going to we're going to try to create that model. So we we did come up with a strategic plan and say, okay, why why do we see our patients getting hospitalized? What do we think could be 
beneficial. And then we started tweaking that process. We started adding and subtracting resources. We refined our approach. And, um, and we started seeing better and better outcomes as we kept kind of pushing the envelope. And, um, and, and what we've seen is, is that we've talked to other groups in, in the area about it, uh, our, our model broadly, and we've seen them try to replicate this and see you know, some of the success we've seen as well. So we know that this is, um, is something that, a concept that works. And we expanded this from one um, clinic to four clinics. And we've seen that even in different regions and different locations and slightly different demographics, that it's a reproducible model that can work. So um, we're, we're really excited about it. You guys were definitely moving into some uncharted territory, it sounds like. So there were probably a couple of missteps along the way or at least some uh, efficiencies you needed to you know, clean up. So to help our audience, what were some of those stumbling blocks that you've since corrected? Well, I think one of the one of the hardest things initially was uh, just convincing our other partners that this that this concept would work. Um, we we were a part of an 800 physician group um, with a, a lot of different primary care physicians, a lot of different specialists, and when we first created this model, um, we depended on our partners to to refer some of their most challenging cases to us. And what we would see time and time again was, you know, are you sure you're going to be able to handle, you know, this patient or that patient or uh, a lot of skepticism, you know, when we right. were first starting that. And, and what we'd see is our partners would say, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to try you out with, with this person and see if you can do, you know, make a better outcome or, uh, or if you can help, you know, uh, Mr. X or Mrs. Y, then I'm going to really, you know, you're going to win me over. And, you know, actually earlier today, I saw a patient where that exact same thing uh, about five years ago, one of our doctors said, you know, if you can help this person get better, then then you'll, you'll sell me on it. And what we saw is, is that that patient got dramatically better. Their sugars are under control. They had no more hospitalizations. Their, their congestive heart failure got better. And we'd let, let our partners know, hey, this is a, the update. And hey, I'm so glad they're doing better. Thank you for for trusting us with their care. And as we won those hearts and minds, you know, things started taking off from there. And uh, we, we um, more and more of our partners said, hey, our, they would start telling their patients that really I want you to go there for your benefit and, and not my benefit. Yeah, patient flow is, is such an important part of a medical practice, but this seems like some really dedicated patient engagement. So what is the time commitment? Right. What what can other practices expect to see? It it, it takes some investment. Uh, you know, how healthcare can work right now is it can be kind of churn and burn, you know, seeing as many patients as you possibly can in a day and squeezing them in. And if if you're only seeing a patient for, you know, five minutes on average or, you know, seven minutes on average, it's just really hard to develop that that deeper relationship or really figure out what what the really underlying reason is and patients can kind of just get shuffled from one doctor to the next and um and we think that's part of the reason why um the average uh senior sees maybe around 10 10 physicians especially the the more complicated patients and it's just the easier thing to do um and what we found is is that you have to really invest time and resources and relationship pieces in that um, in that initial partnership. And as you do that, you pay huge dividends. I mean, it's a great return on investment in terms of what you save on the back end in terms of healthcare utilization, 
but more importantly, in terms of people's lives, in terms of them living more independently, being on less medicines, feeling better about their health, being more engaged in their communities and with their families. You know, we're all patients, ourselves included, as well as obviously our family members. And if we can create something that makes an impact in patients' lives, we're all going to benefit from that. Dr. Matthew Phillip, Medical Director of Clinical Innovation for the DePage Medical Group. Thanks for sharing these insights today. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. While seniors aren't making ER visits to treat social isolation and loneliness, both conditions have shown to put them at higher risk of heart disease, high blood pressure, depression, and in some cases, even death. Technology can play a major part in reducing social isolation and loneliness in seniors, which is precisely where our next guest comes in. David Enns is the CEO of Great Call, a Best Buy subsidiary. Originally an electrical engineer, he spent the last 13 years working with seniors and finding solutions to help them stay independent and avoid costly healthcare episodes using technology. David, thanks so much for joining us today. Now, can you start by telling us how you got involved in this line of work and where your passion for it came from? Uh, yeah, I might uh, be what you would consider non-traditional healthcare. Uh, so I am a, originally originally an electrical engineer and came from more of a technology background. But uh, for the last 13 years, I've been working with seniors uh, where we built the company up to care for a million seniors now. Um, and really using technology to help them stay independent and in their homes longer. Everything from, you know, providing social work using the technology uh, on the simplest side to predictive analytics so that we can use uh, activities and monitoring activities of seniors to be able to predict high cost healthcare episodes and replace those with lower cost interventions. I, I wanted to ask you a question about that then. So you're working a lot with seniors, you're working with technology, kind of help us dispel or uh, give us some insight on the idea that um, seniors struggle with technology. How true is that? And uh, what do you see when you bring out technology for seniors? Are they able to adopt that and, and how so? Um, the, I'd say the first thing you need to think about when you're looking at the senior space is that it is not one group. And that's, that's the most obvious part of addressing this. This is over 40 million people in the United States uh, over the age of 65 and growing, obviously. And in there you have you know active, healthy seniors with caregivers and spouses still around who may be more adept to uh, adopting uh, more advanced technologies. Um, but then at the other end, you have you know, dual eligible seniors, Medicaid, Medicare um, seniors and frail seniors who obviously are not gonna be as adept and, and don't have the money to spend to, to experiment with technology and certainly um, are, are just really left behind a lot more. And guess where most of the healthcare cost is actually tied up in the system, it is actually in that group that does struggle with technology. So that's the first thing is, it's a wide group of people with a wide range of capabilities and technology. So if you're gonna address the whole group, you need to be thinking about it on that, on that spectrum of different levels of capability. The second thing is, is that uh, the key to helping seniors with technology is having a really great service wrapped around the Right? There's so many companies that have come out thinking they're going to solve the senior care dilemma with an app or a gizmo and, 
if you only get excited about the technology and you forget about the service elements. So how do you put that technology in their house? How do you overcome their privacy concerns? How do you keep them engaged with the technology so that they keep using it over time? That's through people. That's not through the technology. And that's how you really help seniors through that barrier and get them to experiment more and try new things and help them through those issues. Yeah, and our, our audience is, is made up of healthcare professionals, many of them on the front line working with patients of all ages, and it doesn't really matter what age that patient is, what comes back again and again is patient engagement. And there's, there's one story that uh, a couple of different people have explained to me, and I've experienced it as a patient, that we do have that great technology that gets brought into hospitals and, and medical practices, and one of those is an iPad. And you will see a doctor come in, and they'll stare at the iPad, and then for the rest of the conversation, you're basically staring at the top of their head. And that's not good patient engagement from the healthcare professional to, um, to that patient. Is, is, I know that's a simplistic uh, you know, example that I'm giving you, but is that some of what you're talking about where you know, you're just, you've got the technology, but you're not always using it to communicate in the best way with that patient? Exactly. You're, you're not using it to technology to the best of the ability to improve the experience for the customer. But also, that's an example where the healthcare professional is using the technology. So picture now giving the senior a piece of technology, a smartphone or, or a, a, a mobile PERS device that's going to track their mobility so we can predict their likelihood of falling in the future. Um, giving them that technology if they don't understand why they're doing it and comfortable with it and have somebody they can call and say hey this red light is flashing on this thing what's going on guess what happens they take it off they put it in a drawer and it's gone and now you've lost that uh you've lost that access to the information that you desperately need because you know the biggest hole in this healthcare um, conundrum especially for seniors is visibility into what's happening with these uh, with these people between their visits with their doctors and or and or their specialists it's a big black hole and the more visibility you can get into what's actually happening with them during that time then a you're going to be able to get on top of issues before they become expensive healthcare episodes and b it's going to help you as a as a as a caregiver or a practitioner you're going to be able to deliver better service when you see them by having more information about what's really happening in their lives right and you were talking about expensive episodes and you and i were talking offline about er visits that many seniors are using that as their almost their uh regular uh, healthcare visits or they're waiting until it's too late and we want to get into that a little bit later with isolation and what that plays but talk about that talk about um, how we escalate things and we get to those what you called an expensive experience there yeah one of the again by not having any visibility we tr uh, into what's happening with the senior in their home we we basically are invisible until something goes badly and they end up in the ER. 
Um, and so that is one of the things we've really been working on, working with health insurance companies, uh, using activities of daily living monitoring. So understanding about the time they're spending in their apartment, coming and going, uh, the time spent in their bed, the time, uh, you know, bathroom time, kitchen time, fridge opening and closing. And by having that data, you can actually see things like um, maybe the likelihood of uh, a urinary tract infection developing, which is something that is very common with seniors that if not treated early is going to result in a hospitalization. Um, it could be complications with CHF or because the time spent in bed or not leaving the apartment and these trends, we can start to identify social isolation happening before it's become you know, a, a serious issue that is resulting in other, uh, other complications. Mm -hmm. Now, we've seen some reports, you may have some other ones that uh, show that uh, a little more than one in four older adults in the United, in the United States live alone. Um, you were talking about isolation and, and living alone earlier. Talk about that a little bit more. Go into detail about that on how significant a concern that can be to have uh, that isolation and then try to deal with uh, your own health care, your own mortality. Uh, where, what are we seeing right now? Yeah, it's um, social isolation is a huge problem. And I think that the um, the healthcare industry really has woken up to the issue as something that is is not just about being lonely. It's that they're seeing more and more studies that are showing things that loneliness does lead to depression, which then leads to uh, other health issues. They've now there was one study just completed that said it's um, you know social isolation and loneliness. Uh, on the extremes compared to, uh, it has as much cost to the healthcare system as smoking 15 cigarettes per day. That's wow. a that's the comparable. Social isolation is literally the same as smoking 15 cigarettes per day in mm. terms of the damage it does to yourself and the likelihood of you developing other diseases. So that's where you hear a lot about, um, you know, the social determinants of health. So trying to look at the senior in a complete picture of what's happening with their lives, not oh, this senior has CHF and oh, this one over here has diabetes. Instead, looking at, well, what's led to the CHF? What are all the things happening in this person's life that are creating the situations that could result in their health deteriorating faster than it needs to? So whether that's they're isolated because they lost their license and they don't have access to transportation, uh, they're not getting to the store and getting proper meals, so they're not eating properly, their nutrition is poor, um, they're, they're living in a, a lot of clutter, so they're having falls because there's nobody there to help them pick up their house or even know that, hey, if, if their mobility isn't great, they shouldn't have throw rugs in their living room in places where they can trip. And obviously, you know, that's falls is one of the most expensive healthcare issues in the country, and it's going to keep getting worse as, uh, as the population ages. So those are the kind of things that we need to look at the complete picture of the senior to really make sure we're avoiding these expensive issues that could be prevented if we had a little more visibility into the complete well-being of, of the older American. Mm -hmm. um, you've made a, a strong point for the different uh, outcomes of, of social, social isolation. Um, 
what are some of the ways you found to be effective in combating social isolation and loneliness among these seniors? Um, one of the studies that we've done has, uh, has shown that uh, 55% of our respondents who've said that they are lonely said that phone calls with family or friends is the most important thing for them to feel less lonely. So one of the first things we try to do, and if you look at what we do at Great Call and Best Buy Health is really to facilitate communication. So really to facilitate communication um, between whether it's family members or ourselves. We, uh, so we have you know simplified cell phones that we can help, help them get comfortable with so they're getting in touch with people more, they're keeping them on and, and having those conversations they need to feel connected. But then we've expanded that into, uh, again, for working with health insurance companies for some of their members, we now have social workers who can deliver service over the phone. So, you know, uh, we if there's a one button device, you hit the button, normally you would just get an emergency response agent who can handle your situation. Well, we have that, but now we've added social workers onto that model. So these social workers, like you would expect, look at that whole picture of the senior and really try to help deal with all of their different issues, including social isolation. So the first thing is facilitating communication. Uh, the second thing is giving the senior the confidence to get out and about and interact. So if you are worried about your mobility or falling or because you're, you know, disease state that, you know, if you put yourself out there and something happens, it's going to be embarrassing. You're going to end up in an ambulance in front of all your friends. Um, that is something that ends up causing social isolation. They don't want to go out. So by giving them that confidence, by having emergency response services, for example, in wearables or on a pendant or built into their cell phones, then they have that confidence to get out and interact. Yeah. So one of the issues is, and I've, I've experienced this in my own family, is getting buy-in, uh, whether it's through fear of adopting a new technology or pride of meaning I don't need that one button, you know, that's strapped down to me like that. I'm not at that point yet. How do you overcome that? What are the kind of conversations that you need to have to, like you said, give them the confidence that, hey, this is the best decision you can make and this is being done to help you? Right. There, There's conversations you can have, which you said first. So the best thing to do is to sit down and talk about the, you know, the pros and cons of wearing a device. If that's the, the device you've chosen or you that you want your mom to wear, let's call it mom. Uh, but I'd say the the next most important thing beyond just having these logical conversations where you can explain the benefits, you explain it's not monitoring, you explain it's really for their own good to keep, uh, to keep them independent longer in their homes, which they all want. So um, that is probably one of the most important things you can do. The second thing is to have a wide range of options for how to get them these services. So rather than just offering a big one button, you know, device that you wear around your neck, um, have a wearable that's uh, got a long battery life they don't have to worry about charging that works with a smartphone for, you know, the senior that we can help adopting smartphones. Or, um, and, and trying to get that technology into more and more devices. So it's not just the conversations, it's also like, well, let's also be 
open and uh, innovative with the technology so that there are choices for the full range of seniors, whether they want, you know, whether they're a frail senior and they're okay with wearing a neck pendant or whether they're a um, more active senior that might want it built into a smartphone or a wearable. So as I was talking to you earlier, I was telling you that uh, much of our audience is made up of healthcare professionals. What kind of advice do you give them? We were kind of talking about that from a, a family or friend related uh, situation, but from healthcare professionals, what are the kind of conversations or due diligence can they do to help these senior uh, patients of theirs? The first piece of advice I would give to healthcare practitioners uh, would be to not be afraid of trying new things to uh, to help the senior and to and to give that get that visibility in between visits. Um, the second thing would be is to embrace this vis this vision of looking at the senior in its entirety as opposed to seeing um, disease states. And I think that that's happening more and more, but I, I think there's still a lot of uh, opportunity to develop that further, is to really looking at the whole social determinants of the health of the senior, as opposed to looking at these individual disease states. That's one of the things we see is we're out there talking to healthcare companies um, is, you know, if it's not something that is aligned with the way they look at the healthcare system, which is on a disease state basis, that it's, uh, it's, it's tough for them to wrap their minds around it. And I think that's gonna be an important evolution of the healthcare system over the next decade is really getting to the, to the full picture, to that whole engagement with the person so that you can get visibility into things before they happen instead of being reactive to the things after they've happened. Mm -hmm. Do you have any memorable stories or, uh successes of working with seniors um, and helping them adopt technologies and how that's helped them out of this social isolation or loneliness? You know, I, one of the best examples, and this one is just fresh in my mind, so I'm going to, uh, I'm going to talk about that it's a little bit different. It's a result of social isolation where we, uh, again, this was where we're monitoring the seniors' uh, kitchen activity and some of these other uh, things again we're not monitoring we're using predictive analytics the computer is monitoring them and then alerting us when something appears to be going wrong that needs attention from the healthcare company so um you know we uh we had an alert that this uh that this senior that their kitchen activity had just kind of crashed off a bridge over a two-day span and so we get this alert and we have specialists who call and their whole reason for being these specialists, we call them our engagement managers, is they go in and they, um, they have that conversation with the senior to try to draw out what might be happening causing the issue. And so uh, the story, uh, our, our agent is talking with the senior and they say, is everything good? Oh, everything's great, you know, and then they're trying to dig in and he's just insisting everything's fine. And then they finally say, well, and your appetite's been okay? Oh yeah, appetite, so you're, you're eating then. And then he finally goes, well, come to think of it, you know, I really haven't been able to eat in the last two days and I don't know why, right? And so there, you know, you have this example of this, this senior who's alone, socially isolated, hasn't eaten in two days. Something very serious is going on with them. And that person is going to end up in the hospital if we hadn't made that call 
and gotten the health insurance company to get their care managers involved to get a home visit, change their medications, whatever it would be, so that it's a much lower cost intervention than if we allowed that to continue on and end up in a hospital visit. Um, now, do you have any final thoughts then about how we can all do a better job, whether it is the, uh, the family caregivers, other loved ones, or uh, the healthcare professionals, what all we can do to help draw these seniors out, to keep them from feeling too isolated and, and provide them with an outlet, activities, whatever it may be. Yeah, the first thing is to, you know, pick up the phone and have those conversations with your, with your, with your parents and make sure, or grandparents, um, you know, even a short conversation is gonna make them feel amazing. And, uh, you know, talking about memories and things of the, from when you were a kid has been proven to be a, a very effective way of drawing positive emotions uh, out of that senior. So that, that's the first thing. And the, the second thing is to, you know, be aware and be, be watching for signs of social isolation. So when you go to visit your mom, if you're noticing, um, you know, the mail piling up uh, in, in, the, in the house and there, there's, there's things you can look for that, you know, the fridge is empty, um, that the, the, there's um, dishes piled in the sink. There's things you can see. And if you're just thinking about it, it's gonna be obvious to you that things are trending in the wrong direction and that you need to get more involved and help. David N, CEO of Great Call, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Well, that's going to do it for this episode of Insights. Thanks to MGMA Live for sponsoring today's show. Also, thanks to our guests, Dr. Matthew Phillip and David Enns. Matt can be heard speaking at MGMA's annual conference, October 13th through 16th in New Orleans. Did you miss early bird registration? Don't worry, we have you covered. Use the code POD200 while registering and save $200. Visit mgma.com slash bigeasy19 for more information and to register for the conference. If you like the show, please rate and review it wherever you get your podcast. We love hearing from listeners about the show. If you have topics you'd like us to cover or experts you'd like us to interview, email us at podcast at mgma.com. MGMA Insights is presented by Craig Weberg, Rob Ketchum, Declan McGee, and I'm Daniel Williams. Thanks for listening.